This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by DeGroyter, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Beyond the Voting Rights Act, the untold story of the struggle to reform America's voter registration laws by Gregory T. Moore. In his new book, longtime voting rights activist Gregory T. Moore chronicles the battles over voter suppression that have been fought in the United States. Moore explains how increasing access to voting and mobilizing people of color to vote can not only tip the balance in many elections, but also ensure the future of our democracy. Martin Luther King III said about the book, Beyond the Voting Rights Act tells a captivating and long overdue story that bridges the historic battles for voting rights that my father led to the landmark legislative battles for voter registration and democratic reform from the 1980s to the present. Beyond the Voting Rights Act by Gregory T. Moore, out now from DeGroyter. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Tulani Davis has told the story of Reconstruction that you probably haven't heard. When at least 400,000 enslaved people escaped to Union lines after the onset of the Civil War, followed by the emancipation of another 3.5 million Black people, the South and the United States as a whole were changed forever. Freed people built organizations, organizing skills, and political theories that would guide Black struggle during Reconstruction's heyday of Black Republican political power. Through Reconstruction's brutally violent defeat, on to the multiracial populist labor and farmer movements of the late 19th century, through the anti-lynching organizing of the early 20th century, the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century, and really to the present day. Davis is the author of The Emancipation Circuit, Black Activism Forging a Culture of Freedom. It's a truly remarkable work covering every facet of Black organization and political power across the South. The emancipation circuit that she quite literally maps out is a set of nodes across the region where black organizational, labor, and political power was built during and after the Civil War under the protection of Union troops and of black self-defense, a set of places linked together as a network by the slave economy's transportation infrastructure. The end of Reconstruction, which was ushered in by massive white terror across the South and Republican Party betrayal in Washington, closed the door on another possible American history that might have been. Had radical Reconstruction succeeded, it would have meant a political, economic, and social revolution in the South, binding poor whites to a black-led political project to build what we might call social democracy and to crush the planter elite. It was a path tragically not taken that would have remade the entirety of American history thenceforth along radically different lines. But Davis shows that a powerful legacy of popular organization lived on. Before we get rolling, somehow the Diggs listenership has nearly doubled in the last two years. 
Nothing could make me more proud of this show than the fact that it has become a valued political education tool for people doing important organizing work all over the country and all over the world, too. But doing this show takes a lot of work from me and from many people who help me put out the show. And that means paying everyone decent money. The only reason we can do that is because listeners contribute to the podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. Many podcasts paywall half their episodes to convince you to contribute, which I get. But we do not do that and will not do that because the political education we do is the point of us doing this podcast in the first place. If you can afford to contribute and you appreciate what we're doing here, please kick us a monthly donation now. $5 a month, that's great. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. A donation of any amount at all, even a buck, gets you our wonderful weekly newsletter by email. And it's really good. You can check them all out at thedigradio.com. For $10 or more a month, you get a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. Okay, Here's Tulani Davis, an interdisciplinary scholar and artist working in history and performance forms who teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The Emancipation Circuit is her most recent work, but her life's work before she entered academia includes so much more, including the book My Confederate Kinfolk, A 21st Century Freedwoman Discovers Her Roots. Davis spent the 70s and 80s as a culture critic at The Village Voice. She's written plays, poems, and a novel. She's an opera librettist, and she won a Grammy for writing the liner notes for Aretha Franklin's boxed set, Queen of Soul, The Atlantic Recordings. Tulani Davis, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. I'm excited to have you here. You open the book by citing Martin Luther King, who wrote that the mass movement that erupted during the summer of 1963 was, quote, the first offensive in history launched by Negroes along a broad front. The heroic but spasmodic and isolated slave revolts of the antebellum South had fused, more than a century later, into a simultaneous, massive assault against segregation. Where had the popular memory and historical memorialization of Reconstruction as a massive Black struggle gone at that point? How was it that amongst the most pivotal civil rights leaders of the mid-20th century seemed unaware of the century of Black struggle that preceded his own? Well, I think to the extent that it existed, it was local knowledge. Even in King's movement, they were getting phone calls, you know, from different towns in the South, like someone called from Brunswick, Georgia, and said they're going to march on Saturday. Very often, he was showing up after a local community had started an action, and he was sort of getting in the front of the parade all the time. But communities were emulating Montgomery all over the South, but not in coordination But once they decided to take an action, they made that call so that there could be coordination. So I think a lot of the memory of activism is also localized like that um, in King's time. I, for instance, grew up in a town where all those things happened, but I had no idea my great-grandfather was going to meetings 
all the time, community meetings, because some policeman shot some black young man, um, which was happening in 1868. So that wasn't uh, passed down. And I found that once I dug into the relationships that they were making efforts to strengthen the size of their community voice to be in touch with other communities. Also, one of the important things was that to protest the situation during before the end of the war when people were fleeing to army outposts, they all had to direct their protest to the same one commander of the military in their region. So it made sense for them to get together. But I grew up in a a town full of descendants of the contrabands uh, who took shelter in Fort Monroe, and I never knew anything about it. So other thing that happened was, and the last time I wrote a book, I speculated that the, the memories were gone because so many of the activists, particularly voter registrars, were killed. And I thought uh, in places like Mississippi, perhaps they had erased that communal expertise. You write, quote, The main proposition of my contribution to this lacuna is that the first offensive in history launched by Negroes along a broad front was begun by the enslaved during the Civil War, and that its connections to later movements are, one, a heritable oral regime of knowledge on building social and political formations, and two, the sustained need to access organizing skills and groups due to the continued lack of protections against systemic injustice and routine violence. We're going to get into a lot of historical detail, but first, lay, lay out your general argument here. What what made this greatest legacy formed by freed people during Reconstruction a legacy above all else of organizing? And, and how does that compare to how the legacy and experience of Reconstruction is typically understood, to the extent that most Americans understand it at all. Okay. Well, this is a good place to follow on what we were just talking about. The part that was heritable was organizing skill. It's just that the organizing skill was practiced in um, non-political ways after Reconstruction was crushed. In other words, all the organizing they were doing as fugitives from slavery and as freed, uh, freed people early, starting in maybe 1868, involved a lot of organizing around so many different issues that people who were interested in exploring, acquiring land, that was one group, vendors who were trying to get the taxes that were being levied against them, that was another group. And uh, what was sort of invisible, I think, to the rest of us was that all the organizing skills were maintained and utilized to build churches and to build uh, labor uh, organizations and to go on strike every once in a while. So that was the part that wasn't visible to me years ago before I started going through the research myself. And I, I realized that they did not just organized communities. They organized, mobilized communities. They always had the goal of taking immediate action 
on the agenda so that people knew how to not just organize an organization and send out letters and ask for money, but they knew how to put people in the street. They knew how to advertise themselves through the great tradition of parading, which mostly lives on on only in um, Louisiana now, because it too was all over the South, but policed out of existence in a lot of places. So the uh, thing that they created that I think they handed down to this country is how to create mobilized publics. Let's define the emancipation circuit, start, starting with its origins. You write, quote, the self-liberation or emancipation by flight of at least 400,000 enslaved people, followed by the emancipation of the rest of the 4 million blacks in the South, produced new social formations within a region already marked by uneven development. I think it's often taken for granted how big of a seismic, just fundamental shift this was. How how did the movement of those 4 million, first those escaping to union lines and later those freed by abolition, how did that create this radically new social and political geography across the region? How did that movement of people create the emancipation circuit's nodes? And then what connected those nodes so that they formed this circuit across space and that endured over time? The 400,000 people who fled, who were able to leave plantations, they went to ports where uh, U.S. armed forces were landing and had set up uh, at least even a temporary uh, fort. When they arrived there, they produced a new idea for everybody who was there, whether it was missionaries who were there, U.S. soldiers who were there from everywhere, from Wisconsin to New England. All these Union soldiers are there, and for the people who showed up. So in the case of my hometown in Virginia, Hampton, the average population was somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000. That Fort Monroe in my hometown was the first place uh, large numbers of people fled to because it was the first place the Union forces landed. Over a period of the next year, 10,000 slaves are camped out around that fort. That means everyone had a great learning experience. Everyone saw the size of the slave system. They knew they were only seeing one town in Virginia, but 10,000 people is about the size of a town like Charleston at the time, a city. That's more people than anybody was used to seeing in this country at that time. As that happens all down the Atlantic coast, there are 10,000 people in Wilmington and New Bern, um, North Carolina, just south of there. The people who actually transit from port to port, like the activists and some of the military people, they are really getting a firsthand view of how huge slavery was and how huge the displacement will be. The displacement itself creates all these new entities. One, black people tended to move slightly away from the forts where they are seeking uh, safety because uh, sometimes they were assaulted, sometimes their blankets and food were taken. It's part of how the black neighborhood of my hometown was created because they moved a distance that they could walk but they needed to be in a settlement where they could have men in the community standing guard all night. Uh, Sometimes women were assaulted by the soldiers, etc. 
So this is all new. In a slave community, enslaved community on a plantation, they couldn't put guards outside the cabins. So this idea of being able to police for self-defense is new. The meetings that they are having publicly are discussing the idea of having rights. The church services they have in the open air near the forts are become an education for all the northerners who are there. So um, there are innumerable ways in which just the uh, movement of the 500,000 creates um, the idea of new possible futures for anybody who uh, encountered it or read about it. What, what sorts of collective self-understanding of black identity began to develop in these camps? And, and how did that compare to forms of collective identity that had existed under the slave system? Well, people on every farm where they were laboring had a sense of community. They had a system for settling disputes. They had elders everybody listened to, that kind of thing. This revelation, let's say you went to a fort near where you had been, and it's also in a place near to where some of your family were sold. The idea of the size of the community you belong to that is suffering the same issues, displacement, lost family members, violent assaults, starvation, poor clothing and housing, gives them a chance to do two things that are really important. They uh, give testimony to their experience wherever they were enslaved. This becomes public knowledge and they begin to understand that assaults on women were systemic, things like that. It enlarges their idea of what happened to whom. It is really also a point at which people start to referring to these displaced laborers as them. For the next few years, they will debate what do we want to call ourselves? They're calling us something, and they now understood it to be anybody who looked like them anywhere. And so in public meetings, they sort of, uh, at least one or two of the intellectuals in the crew would uh, raise issues about, well, Negro isn't quite the right word, blah, blah. One camp in Mississippi sent a letter to one of the authorities saying, we the colored people of Natchez. That, that's how they began to explore um, this long journey we've been on about what to call ourselves um, because they realized they were being lumped with people they'd never seen in their lives into some they. They are the problem. They need to go back to work. So it, it brought this awareness of being part of this huge group determined really by race. You write, quote, It was a circuit born of abolition, made possible by the presence of U.S. military during the war and after, and by the opportunity fugitive settlements provided for holding meetings in large assemblies, setting up schools, and conducting prayer meetings. And the the U.S. Army obviously helped liberate so many enslaved people, and by the war's second year, the Army had started to form black units. Many freed people were eager to fight for abolition in the Sea Islands off the coast of South Carolina. The military set up the Port Royal Experiment, this incredible experiment that redistributed land to freed people to farm without white owners around. But as you referenced just a few minutes back, the army could also be quite brutal. 
in in places forcibly impressing freedmen into being soldiers or forcing black people to labor in conditions that too that in too many ways resembled slavery. What explains these varied approaches by the U.S. Army towards freed people as either an armed guarantor of rights or in other cases, this new oppressor, or in many cases, I'm sure a mixture of both. And how did freed people navigate that all, seizing these new opportunities and responding to to new oppressions? The soldiers who come there, they really, they come from all over the Midwest, New England, New York, um, the Mid-Atlantic states. Their familiarity with stories about the enslaved people would vary wildly, There's one unit that was from out in the Midwest that had uh, enslaved people following them across uh, Louisiana, Alabama. They followed them all the way to Montgomery. The chaplain of that unit was keeping notes. They uh, treated people very decently. They had sort of no preconceptions about what enslaved people would be like. That chaplain had been in a hospital, uh, had been seeing people in hospitals in New Orleans. He knew a lot about the devastation that people of all color suffered during the war. And he um, documented that when they got to Montgomery, Locals drove by every night to wherever black people were huddling, which was under bridges and in any kind of uh, empty buildings. Uh, They would come by with guns and just shoot people every night. And he was as shocked by that as I would have been or you would have been. Um, He had no clue how to understand it. Like, why would they just run by and try to kill um, these people who had been freed by, at that point, the war, uh, even though it wasn't quite over? At the same time, there were many, many preconceptions among other soldiers about who black people might be or what they might be like. And there were also actions taken by black people that really mystified people who were seeing them for the first time. Uh, One example I mention is their church services where people sang and danced. A lot of people who wrote about it, who encountered that on the East Coast, thought it was rather savage. Um, It was just so not polite. So they thought, wow, they have noisy religious practices. And so there were people who uh, didn't spend enough time talking to individual fugitives to find out they're really smart, well-spoken people among them, people who are thinking about this situation, reacting to it as new also. Um, in some cases, reporters did a much better job because they did in, in, interview individuals. And at least people who were reading the newspaper in New York were getting a kind of better sample of who the displaced people were, and what they knew of their situation. You write, quote, For most African Americans, emancipation was begun without assistance and created the need to develop resources from within communities to provide all the benefits and services commonly available in other regions, or in the South, for whites, either by purchase or through municipal agencies. Housing, food, clothing, access to water and sewage— jobs, medical service, education, policing, roads, sites for spiritual practice, entertainment. How did people 
who had so recently been enslaved, managed to pull that off even before the Freedmen's Bureau had arrived? And what role did what might be called mutual aid play in this black organization building amid and following abolition? This is the hardest thing for me to explain to my students. We Americans are so sheltered from what displacement looks like and what it really is that it's very hard. I I did this uh, yesterday. I asked people, I was going to put on the board everything they think people might need who had done this fleeing from the plantation thing. And two, three years ago when I started doing that, everybody in my class would say education. That would be the first thing they they need. Black communities have a, an, an intense focus on education as a way to move forward in society, um, always have. But uh, my students couldn't imagine, oh, right, they have nowhere to sleep. So I said, let's, let's start with food, clothing, and shelter. Um, do they need money? Um, so we will fill up three blackboards by the time we actually get through it. And I believe there are shanty towns outside of Mexico City where people did exactly the same calculation in the 20 and 20th century, 21st century. There are people across the globe doing this all the time, but it's really hard for us to imagine because we uh, so seldom are without everything unless all the electricity in Texas goes out. Then when people, you know, have to actually go out of their car, they can go out of their house. They can get in their car and still go get water. In Jackson, Mississippi, there is a place to go get water. In the 19th century, it would be about finding a well and having a bucket and having to carry it a long distance. So to me, it's unsurprising that they were able to make a long list of uh, what needed to happen and to realize they had to divide up their forces so that different people tackled one issue at a time, and progress was made, hopefully, on all issues. Otherwise, they did things communally. They built houses for each other. In my hometown, if there was an old lady who had no family left, they would uh, volunteer, go get lumber that was being thrown away by the army, and build a cabin for her and whoever was going to take care of her. That was a routine thing in the memoirs of the ministers who were down there um, working with them, that they didn't um, ask anybody's permission. They didn't even tell the minister they were going to do it. They just said, okay, we got to build Miss Gray a house. So I think uh, one of the other things I would stress about this that makes it kind of amazing for us to understand is that they did this largely without literacy. No one's writing lists. They're not saying, okay, you're in this committee. Here's the four things. I've written it down for you. Here's the four things you're going to do. I try to imagine that all the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine keeping that level of organization in my head. Yes, and they had always had to, or they'd had to keep everything in their heads. So I'm thinking it wasn't a big stretch. Well, yeah, I think it's important to emphasize that all this organizing you write that it did not begin with abolition or even with the onset of the war. You write, quote, The roots of the emancipation circuit were in the common wind, the surprisingly effective pattern of communications among enslaved people that could pass news across plantations, counties, 
regions. And they could also apparently pass people because you cite this, you tell this remarkable story from 1864 when Union officer Lieutenant Hannibal A. Johnson and three other, three fellow officers escaped from a Confederate prison camp and then were passed. They knock on slave quarter doors and then were passed from plantation to plantation for I don't know how this incredible distance by enslaved people until they made it back to Union lines. How did the common wind operate at such a large scale? And and to what extent did it lay the groundwork for the emancipation circuit? And in what ways was the circuit something entirely new and different? The slaves in Tennessee got those guys, I'm sorry, South Carolina they started in, they got them 500 miles away. <laughs> that was the distance. They went Unreal. Unreal. from Columbia, South Carolina to up into Appalachia to get to Knoxville. And they got four white guys that far. The guy writes in his uh, memoir that about two weeks into it, they were gaining weight from the food that enslaved people were bringing them to wherever they had hidden them on a plantation. And I, I just used that because it really stresses the idea that people who were confined to a certain number of acres in a certain state, in a certain county, might have been a thousand acres, might have been a big place, but most people on those uh, plantations did not get to go to town. They did not get to visit places they've heard about, and yet they had familiarity with the routes that people used who did go such places. So the first night those guys arrived, they are able to tell them, no, no, you don't want to be on the main road because blah, blah's forces are coming down that main road tonight because they're also having to pay attention to the movement of the war and they know Confederate soldiers are coming that way. And then they have access to food enough to feed these people and then get them all the way into the mountains uh, where they've never been. So I I think what happens immediately um, is that at the end of the war, if those people wanted to go from South Carolina to Knoxville, they already know how to get there or can find out. And this is part of why so many people were able to flee during the war Of course, they were fleeing to the coastline, but they had information within the community about how to do it and uh, were able also to remember a mental map um, that may refer to things in nature, just even to tell them how to keep their bearings, how to keep going north. But they would have also probably been uh, warned of the hazards on the way, like there's a giant marsh you're going to have to go around. I don't know. But that's why, and because their families were sold often to people nearby, people had an interest in communicating with people in the next community over. Maybe they had friends there. Um, The other thing I was trying to say is that what was invisible to the uh, slavers and the whole police framework for policing slavery was these guys who loaded the trains, who loaded the boats, who uh, sometimes rode on the train from one stop to another, the boatmen who 
delivered and were out on the waters, the inland waters, for a month at a time on their own, delivering products or moving tobacco. Those people were invisible when people started thinking, how do we police these free people? They didn't realize there were people still who were being encouraged to go back in the workforce who still were going to be communicating with the next town over. So they're they're busy just objectifying them and saying they're laborers, they need to be back at work. But even back at work or doing that work had enabled them to be in contact with people in other communities. Yeah, you, you write that the circuit route was, quote, trafficked by cotton bales and hogsheads of sugar and tobacco. It's it's remarkable that it is the economic infrastructure, including the transportation infrastructure laid down by the slave system economy that shaped this geography of the emancipation circuit dedicated to its opposition to the slave system and the attempts to the white supremacist attempts to essentially resurrect it. Right. That's because they weren't looking at black people. So there's a a railroad line that ran from, uh, probably still does, from Richmond to Danville, Virginia. And then from Danville, it goes through northern uh, North Carolina and back up into Norfolk. For some reason, that was the route they had to send the tobacco. So if some guys um, loading um, in Richmond went on strike, the word went all the way down the line to Danville and over or all the way uh, around to Norfolk, and subsequent strikes might occur. This happened in 1866. Right at the end of the war, they immediately um, realized if they had been paid $15 a month or their masters or owners had been paid $15 a month two years earlier, three years earlier, as free people, they were being offered $10 a month. Um, This happened across the board with people working on docks, people working on tobacco. Um, The wages were lowered as if the same person who had done it as an enslaved worker did not know how much money their owner was being paid they often had to carry the earnings to the slaveholder. But it's like, yeah, but that's that's the old days. Now you're getting 10. And they can enumerate why it would be impossible to pay rent, see a doctor, um, put clothes on the children's backs, get school books on um, that amount of wage. So the strike pattern is enabled by the very pattern uh, of moving tobacco. And no one thought, wow, this will uh, allow workers to be in touch with each other in two states, um, because they just saw the people as lifting things and moving things. Yeah, it's an incredible contradiction in, in the system. And you cite these tobacco factory workers in Portsmouth, Virginia, who went on strike in 1865, who who they pointed out that they'd been hired out by their owners for 12 to $15 a week plus room and board while they were only taking home 450 to 5 bucks a week as wage laborers. And you write, quote, former enslaved people viewed themselves as a laboring class. And, and of course, so did their white rebel enemies and former enslavers. And It wasn't just that black people were plantation workers. There were also 100,000 skilled black workers, you write, known known as mechanics in the parlance of the time, compared to only 20,000 
white skilled workers. And you write about one 1865 black mass meeting, which created a document entitled Equal Suffrage, Address from the Colored Citizens of Norfolk, Virginia. It, it called on black people to form political labor and land associations. They wrote, quote, it is a common assertion by our enemies that this is a white man's country, but even our enemies and old oppressors themselves used to admit, nay, contend for the urgent necessity of our presence and labor to the national prosperity. This, the black run New Orleans Tribune called for authorities to, quote, let the land go into the hands of actual laborers because it was impossible to see the complete and perfect freedom for working men so long as they remain the tools of capital and are deprived of the legitimate product of the sweat of their brow because, in fact, capital is created by labor. What sort of class consciousness did the race consciousness of freed people entail and and vice versa? And how did they understand their economic position and how how did that understanding shape their economic philosophy or, or ideology. It's one of the reasons that I say in my book, after uh, Reconstruction is crushed, what happens next is mostly labor organizing because it was fundamental to their understanding of the situation in the first place. So in mass meetings, when people uh, are fugitives and during the war, they're having mass meetings and after, people ch- cite chapter and verse like, they uh, sold my children to pay for another hundred acres of land or whatever. They would give specific examples in which they had been monetized, their bodies had been monetized, or their children in order to acquire a specific piece of property that increased the value of the holders, his bank account, so to speak. They would give specifics along that line, but more common was the notion that every was that people were saying that's why we were brought here we were brought here only to work and in some cases women might say apparently we were also brought here to have more to have babies to make more slaves but they all understood they had not been brought for any benevolent reason no one um, was trying to get to know them when they got here that they had no identity in the culture other than as laborers So it really shouldn't be surprising. But you write, quote, one can get so inured to the idea that Southerners did not want African-Americans voting and being part of state government that one does not bother to look for other forms of self-interest beside racism that voter repression serviced. Controlling the labor of the survivors of the slave system was of primary importance. This this reminds me of the famous Barbara Fields line, one I've returned to with some frequency, quote, probably a majority of American historians think of slavery in the United States as primarily a system of race relations, as though the chief business of slavery were the production of white supremacy rather than the production of cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco. Looking at the position of the oppressors, how, how did the ideology of white supremacy serve the economic demands of subjugating black labor amid amid reconstruction and through redemption and then inversely how did those economic demands serve white supremacy all all of it revolving around fixing black workers in place some of it was kind of stupid as um you were implying um for instance, those mechanics who had made more uh, money in slavery or for their owners, they were 
in those jobs in the first place because they would have been cheaper than white mechanics. So you end up having a job that white people are not really competing in. Once slavery ends, white people show up for the mechanics jobs, assuming that they're, uh, everybody's desperate for labor because some of those enslaved people uh, fled or moved. So it, suddenly there's uh, new salaries for white workers on the docks. And it's, it's the idea of negotiating with people who had been enslaved is so repulsive, according to the articles in Southern Papers I was reading, that they can't wrap their minds around what was in their greatest self-interest. In uh, some cases, uh, like in Virginia, they just went and shot the people who were doing the strike or they would shoot two of them and uh, hope the strike would be halted. So it it turns out in Florida that uh, all these dock workers become some of the most vital uh, employees of the e- economy um, to because they are moving all the lumber. And they have great success in each in getting even the state legislature to shorten their days, first to 10 hours, uh, to raise their wages. And they get some compensation for what had been happening earlier, where if a guy died, they would just throw the body off the dock into the water, not allowing the community to give him any kind of uh, funeral. So they start fighting for all kinds of rights uh, that have to do with just decent um, treatment. And in the South, there's so much is done on a client basis. A lot of the small town economies are are built uh, on clientelism so that people are accustomed to saying, I will put you out of business if you don't speak to me the way I want you to speak to me. It's so self-indulgent. It's not practical. It's not necessarily smart business. It is propping up a system that privileged certain people to the extent that when I was a kid in the 50s in Virginia um, during segregation, if I ran into a, a store to get a comic book, my father had to tell me so that nothing weird would happen to me that when I went to pay for the comic book, I had to wait for every white person in the store to pay for their goods first. The privileges of being first and not having to wait in line were more important than making money. So if I got tired of standing in line and decided I could live without the comic book, so be it. Because they did not regard our economic power as as important as keeping this comfort zone that they were still in control of this population they had controlled violently since the since sixteen nineteen. I want to tease out a really a particular really interesting example you explore in the book. The example of Florida. How did white leaders use use racism in Florida? to repress black labor? How did that dynamic play out there? Which I found to be a really particularly interesting example in your book, because at the time, Florida was largely undeveloped and sort of this blank slate for capitalist fantasy dreams of for future development. There was sort of a lot of competition among the white people who wanted to run the government in the first place. So there were like six different groups trying to control the state. Um, once 
black people were going to be able to vote. But largely the approach to uh, keeping black people from being the voting majority they would have been was divide and conquer. They did things on the books like they ended up reconfiguring counties um, and redistricting them, um, gerrymandering as we call it now, so that districts that were white minority had a heavier percentage of how they uh, counted the vote to minimize those uh, black communities. It's, it's very much like what's going on now to minimize the impact of communities where there are large numbers of black voters. So um, that's one thing. Also, the, the industries that wanted to come in were the industries that are there now. Hospitality. There were people who wanted to build resorts there, and then there were people who wanted to deal with lumber and products that come from lumber. But they were going to need a lot of uh, ordinary labor just to clear the land. So most of the southern half of the peninsula um, was still wooded. They they weren't the uh, enslaved people who had been there were chopping down trees. Um, so everybody um, ends up uh, fighting in the top half of the the um, state. And they rely on white supremacy to gain support. They, they have some very, very harsh ideas about how to punish people for what they consider offenses against white culture, like interracial marriage, interracial sex, living together. Um, there are enormous fines and prison time for that. They sort of reinstate physical violence, like whipping people. They used extreme measures to scare these freed people about doing whatever they wanted to do and trying to live fully in some idea of freedom. That was very successful. Uh, one of the governors they elected who ran with this white supremacist um, platform was a guy from Wisconsin who used to be the editor of one of our newspapers that still exists. It was kind of a gravy train. So they had five or six governors who weren't even uh, from Florida or even near Florida who saw this purely as a kind of um, great exploit um, to come in and using white supremacy was uh, a no-brainer for them and uh, may not have uh, had anything to do with uh, what they really felt, but it was a key tool to dealing with both the corporate entities that wanted to come in, who also accepted the white supremacy, and dealing with the locals and trying to enhance the power of white Floridians. One notable thing across the South was that Black people, when given the opportunity, farmed more food and fewer staple crops like sugar, rice, and cotton. How did freed people relate to and theorize land and agriculture from the perspective of a rural laboring class? Well, these people had been underfed probably their entire lives, regardless of how old they were. Food was very important and also variety in food because the food that was handed out also was not rich in, you know, kale, turnips, things you need. So uh, they were trying to have a more diverse diet also and one that they could be in greater control of. 
they they thought um, raising smaller crops was all they needed in a way to sustain their family. They they're not raising crops to be sold across the country. They could go with a fewer number of acres of crops that they could themselves transport and sell. A lot of people in um, these coastal communities were vendors on uh, on weekend days and took things they were growing into market, things they were making, uh, could even include baskets, carvings, cloth, whatever. But it was about being self-sustaining. You write that rural areas were often the strongest bases for black political power during Reconstruction. But, but today, of course, we think of cities as black political strongholds, or at least we did for the latter part of the 20th century. Why was the countryside so much more conducive to freed people exercising power? Both things are true for the same reason. It has to do with where the majority of the black population was. By the 60s, they were in Gary, Indiana. Um, They were in places where we were struggling to elect black mayors because there was 50% of the electorate or slightly more than 50%. And it became kind of a uh, rule of thumb that you have to have an over 50% electorate to elect those people. But um, one, Reconstruction defies that. Um, the people in Norfolk, for instance, uh, black pe- the black population in Norfolk went back and forth across the 50% line. They elected people when they were in the 40s, and that means they were good at politics. If you don't have a majority, you have to have political skills, and we're watching that now in all these places that are 50-50 or 50-49. We are going the results we're going to see will have to do with political skills not numbers but in the 60s we got to thinking that was the thing in louisiana there are more black people in the rural counties um than there were in new orleans and in more counties because they had been put there in slavery to work and large numbers of people were in various areas all over Louisiana where, uh, according to crop, so where they were raising cotton, there were lots of black people. Where they were raising sugar, there was lots of black people. They also had on-the-job issues. So even after Reconstruction, they're still fighting for fairer wages and more freedom in their immediate environment and things like that. They have uh, an honest lead on the political process because they aren't moving. Um, They wiped out most of the representatives in New Orleans, and there were dozens of them, um, very early in the uh, Reconstruction years. That was due to effective politicking. So in these communities in the middle of Louisiana and in the sugar parishes, they stayed organized because they were continuing to organize, this is my theory, um, around labor issues as well. And they were also places where enormous violence like Gatling guns were brought in to contend with their first big strike in 1887. So everybody kind of... um, realized it was, the stakes were very high, and they were able to maintain the ability to elect people for a longer period of time. That's true in quite a few places, and I was sort of surprised myself uh, when I looked at it. And they continued to do the labor organizing 
and also to create exodusters movements. Um, these same people are creating migrations when people feel like, okay, uh, I'm still not getting anywhere. The, organi- the organizational skills that had done all the previous uh, mobilizations uh, just came into play where uh, whole communities would have meetings for years and put in money for years because they were trying to migrate and take a whole community in so doing. They would take a whole neighborhood. To we're going to move the whole neighborhood. Either to Liberia or out, or out west. Yeah, mostly to Oklahoma. Uh, well, they start going to Arkansas, uh, then Oklahoma, Nebraska. Um, there are 500 remnants of all black towns in Texas. Um, so they uh, start really moving up the Mississippi and then west. You write, quote, There is little wonder that the most prominent structure of black political organizing after the Civil War became the mass meeting, which, in its diverse manifestations in fields, in churches, on coastal shores, and at the perimeters of forts across the South, was a public declaration of citizenship. A public declaration, you note, that freed people often protected themselves at gunpoint. What were these mass meetings like? Who who organized them? What processes guided them, and why did white people find them so incredibly alarming? Okay, I'll go back to where I started with when people came south and saw all these black people, um, they started having shocking experiences. Um, (laughs) The black activists who came from the north never went to meetings that big. They might have gone to meetings at Mother Bethel in Philadelphia. That would have been hundreds of people, but not thousands. Having riflemen outside would not have been necessary. Um, so there, even among the activists who were born in the South and born in slavery, they found uh, their letters are full of emotions of being overwhelmed and empowered just by seeing all these people so anxious to hear about uh, what their rights might be. People who uh, had come prepared to guard them from um, local whites who were going to threaten them, which also happened. So the community already knows what pond they're swimming in. It's the outsiders who don't know. So I use this example of from a, a black folklore uh, where Sister Goose uh, wants to go uh, swim in the fox's pond, and everybody keeps telling her, no, that's the fox's pond. Don't do that. You'll get eaten. And um, she does it anyway. And um, the moral of the story is... Um, you have to know what the pond is that you're swimming in. And this is something enslaved people were experts on. And in many ways, they had to train the outsiders who came in as to how to organize in the South just by enlarging the vision of what they were doing on a small scale. And they also had, from whatever the practice was, for self-governance among enslaved communities, enslaved quarters. That was a practice that listened to elders, allowed women to speak, and um, perhaps children. In these public meetings, women and children speak at will. 
uh, so I assume they're used to doing so. And I believe that to have come from uh, understanding throughout the South in enslaved camps that women were at the same risk or greater risk and suffering the same traumas or unique traumas uh, and children as well as any of the men. They had as much at stake when they broke the rules, when they went to secret meetings in the woods. Um, Everybody's life was at stake equally. So coming into freedom, women are much more enabled in terms of speaking in public than maybe white women in Victorian America. So this was um, quite amazing to some of the reporters who came. You write, quote, The foundational structures for community building and activism of all sorts emerged from a matrix of early benevolent societies and trade associations with overlapping membership and local roots. What were these mutual benefit societies and secret orders, which, which were, you write, in fact, more numerous than black churches? Churches, black churches, of course, have long been the reference point, though for understanding black organization. Meanwhile, civic organization has long been noted as this distinctive feature of American society since at least de Tocqueville. What do we see that's otherwise obscured when we look at these black civic organizations and not just the black church? Take New Orleans. In the 19th century, they had something like 224 black associations that did different things. Um, daycare, mechanics association, domestics association, um, all kinds of women's groups. They didn't have 224 black churches. They, the churches were very important. But um, what, it, what seems important to me is if you live in a certain neighborhood, um, you might belong to five associations uh, overlapping your different interests in life. So you might belong to the Mechanics Association that's based on the docks and is downtown but has meetings in your neighborhood because some of these associations went by district. And uh, so there'd be somebody who was in charge of that association in each district of New Orleans. That means that if you belong to five associations and you have a big project you're trying to do, whether it's electing an official, uh, an official or putting on a festival or a fair that will fund an orphanage, you have five different groups you already belong to that you're going to bug and say they, you, they really, as part of your association, have to come to this thing and make a contribution. It makes uh, voting organizing very easy. Um, so they have people in every district who can turn out the vote. And um, they just start with their local associations, which might be religious. It it could be um, there are variety functions. There are people who are playing soccer, playing baseball, that have a society or an association to put on games. There uh, is an association to form a fire engine uh, group for one black neighborhood or another black neighborhood. Um, They have to do it that way because the fire trucks, um, there are no city fire trucks necessarily, but the local fire trucks, wherever you are, whether it's Atlanta or in a small town, they're not coming to the black neighborhood. 
So one of the first things black people did was to try to buy fire engines uh, for their neighborhoods. So to me, the, there's such an ability to mobilize uh, all the black people in a city because of this plethora of organization, organizations. Sorry. You write, quote, What is so compelling about the situation facing freed people at abolition and their responses to it is that they constitute the purest definition of political struggle, making themselves heard, recognized as part of the American polity. When the four million began to speak, a challenge was made to every existing institution in society. What did freed people, for for centuries denied legitimate political agency, say when they began to assert their membership in the polity? How and how did freed people develop their political theory in relationship to dominant American political theory and perhaps also more broadly in relation to theories across this this larger black Atlantic? And I guess in particular, how did they approach this fundamental contradiction of American freedom with these revolutionary universal principles on the one hand and this reality of brutal, racist, rampant exploitation on the other? To the last question, enslaved people had been living with that contradiction ever since they heard about the um, ideals that were going to be the basis of this republic. I think they found the ideals, particularly in the era of the revolution, exciting and important, and they took them to mean, okay, that means me too. And over the years began to um, be able to ponder the contradiction of those things being not being fulfilled. The only thing I can use to compare it to is what happens with immigrants who come to this country now. So for a few years in the South, there are thousands of people taking a civics course in what the ideals of the country are and also the mechanisms by which the country works, what their rights are. Immigrants come here and they do that in a shorter period of time. But they are much more aware in different situations of the stakes for the principles of the um, republic than many Americans who learned it in elementary school, and it's not all that fresh in their minds. So you find that this community who had this education over and over again between and refreshed between 1868 and 1873, that's a couple of generations of people who know uh, way more about how this country uh, built it, um, tried to build a structure that could enable those ideals. They know much more about it than... Uh, a whole range of people who live in the same same state with them who have not uh, yet had the chance to have a public education. Because these freed people are going to invent the public schools in the South. So if you imagine all the white people who lived in Alabama and Mississippi, what they knew about the Constitution, the founding, and the rights of every individual— Uh, compared to what these people going to these mass meetings are learning and understanding. There's a real sharp contrast to to the point that even years later in King's movement, um, there are local people who have to brush up on 
which laws are being broken and um, which what civil disobedience can be done. I mean, there there's a kind of refreshment course that happened in the civil rights movement about um, what is and is not legal practice because some of the uh, practices were outside of legality. But the activists have to sort of come in and say, okay, here's the deal. Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A Spectre Haunting on the Communist Manifesto by China Mieville. Few written works can so confidently claim to have shaped the course of history as Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels' Communist Manifesto. Since first rattling the gates of the ruling order in 1848, this incendiary pamphlet has never ceased providing fuel for the fire in the hearts of those who dream of a better world. In this strikingly imaginative introduction, acclaimed writer China Mieville provides readers with a guide to understanding the manifesto and the many specters it has conjured. As Mike Davis puts it, in Mieville's brilliant interpretation, the manifesto is like a great comet whose periodic return blinds the sky with its light and urgency. Read this and be dazzled by its contemporaneity. A specter haunting by China Mieville, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. You write about a Tennessee Freed People convention in Nashville that took place in 1865 and that it resolved to make a census of the state's entire Black population, quote, so that the world may know our true condition. They also thanked friends of the race and requested, quote, a continuance of their exertion in our behalf until we arrive at the fullness of citizenship. And you also write about the state convention of the colored people of North Carolina and their celebration of the U.S. recognizing Haiti and Liberia. And and about an 1869 Georgia state colored convention in Macon that you write, quote, welcomed Chinese laborers to the United States. How did freed people theorize their relationship to a obviously very politically divided white American majority and then also to to the rest of the world? I'm not sure how they came to theorize it. Um, and I was going to say one of the really important things in the first day of freedom's of freedom was that there were all these black newspapers and they covered things that were going on um, in the nation's politics and also elsewhere in the world. And they paid attention to other places in the world where people of color were trying to make change. So I think the common wind that is bringing sort of revolutionary ideas to the ports of the South uh, before Nat Turner's time, is also uh, bringing news of other people seeking to uh, live by the ideals of a, a republic in which um, every person's uh, vote matters and um, everyone has the chance to pursue um, their possible futures. 
the revolution in Haiti was really huge news in black communities in the South, and it went on long enough for uh, a lot of them to hear about it. And the people who supported some of the, the free people in Louisiana were people who had supported the Haitian Revolution from their apartments in Paris. So there is an intellectual wing uh, attending uh, Reconstruction that makes these international ties as well. The activists who came from the North who were black people who had been well-educated also by giving the same speeches over and over again and acquainting people with the parts of the world they were watching, um, whatever they had learned about Africa, one or two of them had been to Africa, um, they are continuing to feed this hunger that was in the South about news of the rest of the world and what world they uh, were now trying to fit themselves into. Because they didn't have a place in the world. Um, they had a place in a locality, in a local geography. But once they become the they and then elect to become the we, they want to see, well, who is the we? One of the things that all of these communities did was try to get information on their black communities. Like, how many people are living there? What are uh, their experiences with violence in their local area? They are documenting assaults on people, assaults on people who are part of the voting system that they've set up, all that. And there's a desire to define the we. Americans, when they formed a state and, and decided, okay, we're going to be an independent republic, there are all kinds of people who wrote about who we is. What, what is the we of uh, being uh, a citizen of the United States? People coming out of slavery were also trying to define the breadth and territory of the we. So when Thomas Jefferson uh, said we the first time, Louisiana and the rest of the West wasn't part of that geography, he had the vision or the idea that, okay, we should be bigger. Um, and you could imagine it that way, that people who are conceiving of themselves as a we, because it's more powerful being a we than being um, an I, they are trying to judge what is the breadth of that? Are black people in the North treated like we're treated? That's a question. Um, it was a question that got answered. Well, uh, those people in Haiti, um, they, they're going to run a whole country. Can we do that? Um, it, it just raises all these questions about how to conceive of yourself as an individual, your family and community, and also your possible futures. I want to talk about the, the outsiders that the Civil War and then abolition brought to the Black South, something you, you, you just referenced. You tell so many incredible stories on this count. You write about Thomas Bain, who escaped to New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he became literate, worked, I believe, as a dentist, and held office before returning south to become a, re to become a Reconstruction leader in Norfolk, Virginia, or, or James T. Rapier, who was born free in Alabama, admitted to the bar in Canada, and would later be a U.S. congressman from Alabama. And then during the war, there was the military aid provided by Harriet Tubman, who who was sent by Massachusetts Governor John Andres to, to Beaufort, North South Carolina, to work with fugitives and also 
to build a network of enslaved spies and also where she led the famous Combahee River raid in 1863 in North Carolina, Abraham Galloway, he had escaped to Philadelphia and then to Canada. He likewise came back south to develop this network of spies behind enemy lines. What was this northern network of black leaders, both escaped enslaved people and black people born free? And what role did they play to to shape the politics of, of black reconstruction when they moved south? Well, they prove my contention that blackness is a training ground for um, overachievement. <laughs> um, those people were even more extraordinary than that. Um, I mean, they most of them wrote books about their experience. It's one of the ways we sort of know something about it. They also went through all kinds of political changes themselves. So um, one of the things I find really interesting about them is they were abolitionists in the North, and they come south, and they see the epic size of what's going on, what the South actually is, and they also realize they cannot just preach to the people they're trying to help. They have to listen and learn, and um, they all... Uh, have transcendent or uh, experiences, one, just seeing the masses of people who are escaping from slavery. Um, that, that was, it's, it's hard for me to even imagine, but I, it was life-changing for, according to what they wrote for them. It was empowering in a way that being free in the North was not or hadn't become yet. So if they went to an open field on a hot day to talk to black people about their rights. And there's 3,000 people there and armed guards ringing the lawn where you're going to go after you have been threatened by people, after you get on the train and you're walking to the lawn to talk to these 3,000 black people. A white group has come and threatened your life. We're going to kill you. You go up there, and there's all these people with arms. Uh, in one case, the guy said most of the people there were carrying weapons. And he said, I just went up there and did my thing, you know. And I was really great that day. Um, it, it, I'm paraphrasing. But those experiences were continually empowering for them. So um, it sort of amped up what the stakes were. They would try to do this other more difficult thing. And it also made them start drawing the lines on what was unacceptable. So when they start just cutting the pay of teachers in a school in New Orleans, um, they start to say, no, the people who have fled to New Orleans, these are single mothers. They cannot just pay you more money. You're going to have to supply books. You're going to have to find a way uh, for us to um, have teachers paid, etc. It sort of cured their weariness. So I, I think, in a sense, it kept them very driven. They also, some of them went through several different kinds of causes in the um, as their life went on. So they got into various forms of organizing, I'll put it that way. And they took time to write a book. It's just amazing. <laughs> They were really able to provide a kind of quick method of doing things like spreading um, your ideas, producing documents, organizing skills that were 
in a sense, uh, in some cases, borrowed from urban churches in the north where they were or organizing large communities such as these people were finding in the south. Several of them wrote for such publications, and many of them were ministers. So they knew a lot about organizing, finding people in the community who will make good leaders, uh, people who have uh, just identifying other people, total strangers, who might have good skills for the kind of work they're doing. They found that the population was really good at memorizing stuff, and so they used rote learning where they would teach everybody at the meeting all these principles and ideas and have them memorize it and go to another community and um, teach another group. So there was a kind of resourcefulness among those people that um, was very, very helpful. I want to talk about those northern churches because alongside teachers, which we've which you've touched on on and off throughout this interview, churches were some of the earliest people from churches, ministers, missionaries, were some of the earliest and most numerous outside arrivals to the South. And in particular, we're talking about the African Methodist Episcopal or AME church, a northern black church preaching to southern freed people. What sort of theology and ideology did those northern black missionaries bring to the South? You write, quote, like other groups sending organizers to the South, the AME preached industry, thrift, sobriety, and self-reliance. But the church's theology and political ideology perhaps helped nurture the emerging radicalism of Southern blacks. What, what was the AME church of this era, and what happened when it encountered black life and politics in the South? That church grew enormously during this period. They came out of protest because the Methodist Church in New York was uh, discriminating against black, early uh, black New Yorkers. And they decided um, they had to have their own churches, and that evolved into their own practice. So they felt uh, almost uh, as if ordained um, by a higher power. They were the really right people to go south because they knew that in the south, freed people were going to still have to form all-black um, churches and missions because of the previous segregation whereby enslaved people were put in the balconies of white churches they even knew, uh, for one thing, that finding buildings to have church in could be a challenge. And uh, th- some of those ministers even went after the white Methodist church and just said, why don't you turn over one church in this city um, for black freed people to have their own church? Um, that took a while, but they had some success with that. Um, they felt that the way they preached interpretation of the Bible was particularly suitable or particularly geared to not just black audiences, but people emerging into a world of redefining uh, what their lives are going to be like, because those um, they had been with whom they'd been building the churches in the North were uh, some people uh, coming out of northern slavery. There were people um, just coming north, people who were redefining their lives as uh, free citizens of the United States. 
they had members who could vote in some states, who could not vote in others. They understood the community building process. So I think in that regard, they were correct in their assessment as to uh, how helpful they could be. The particular ministers they sent south were also very uh, unique and, and just empowered individuals who started lots of congregations. And then those congregations later built churches. So that in places like Florida by 1868, the AME church is one of the players in all those factions that are vying for black votes there. So they, they did amazing work. How did abolition impact gender relations and, and freed women's position in the South? You write, you write that there were pressures for freedmen and women to emulate patriarchal white families, but also struggles to remake black families separated by the slave system. And then the pressure for everyone to earn a wage to survive within this new la- wage labor market. Meanwhile, freed women were, were not only unable to secure financial support from the slave owners who had forced them to bear children, they had also they also had to fight to claim their own parental rights as their children were being forced into so-called apprenticeships, often with their former slave owners. This is where the lens of slavery helps you to understand that you may have to change the world. So those women, one, were already empowered to participate in political discussion or whatever. They were probably pretty well empowered in their households also, just saying. (laughs) They probably spoke up at will. They are, in a sense, better suited for uh, some of these uh, decisions than white women in Victorian America. They have possibly lost a partner already. They possibly have had more than one man in their life or a partner in their life. That would be unusual. Slavery may have set a goal for them to choose their own partner for the first time. There have to have been women who had never had a chance to choose their own partner. So they're looking at freedom in a slightly different way than men would. Uh, Men have people preaching at them about patriarchy, and they have to be the man and the head of the household. But in the enslaved community, the head of the household was the slave owner. He was head of all households. And so I think women come out of this experience uh, somewhat well-equipped to go uh, work in the wage-earning world and also really clear about what they do and they don't want to do. So a lot of people want to be self-employed, run their own laundry business or whatever, so that they are not exposed to assault in the homes of people who might hire them as domestics. They want to choose their own partners, raise their own children. They are seeking means to educate their children. They have ideas about, for instance, domestic violence. Um, A black woman uh, in the 19th century brings the first court case for domestic violence, um, and she wins, um, in Alabama. Um, No one had gone to court for that anywhere. Black women are looking at freedom as a way to change a lot of things. So, um, if they had sold uh, a woman's husband away and she had children, 
and she manages to figure out how she can rent a cabin on a farm and raise a crop with her two daughters. In the case of one woman who had two daughters, um, she's got a piece of land and she's assuming custody of her daughters who are uh, 11 and 13, something like that. We would consider that all natural, but women didn't really have custody of children in the 19th century. Some man owned the children just the way they owned the the mother of the children. So I, I'm putting this in a very plain language, but a black woman goes to court because uh, her former owner had the local sheriff in her town come bust down the door in the middle of the night, take her two daughters away, put them in jail to be delivered to the former slave owner the next day because the former slave owner went to a judge in his county, and he's a judge too, um, and said, I I need, uh, rather he went to a judge in her county and said, I need to apprentice uh, so-and-so's daughters. So she suddenly, uh, she has the vision of living in a cabin and making a living with her two daughters. She has to uh, envision going to court as a woman for custody of her children. That didn't happen at that time, but she went to court anyway. Um, A number of women went to court to get custody of their children, although this was um, considered, you know, very far out, like, what, a woman's going to take care of her children without a husband? Uh, no. And that was probably the basis on which the slave owner um, got a judge to take her children away from her. Then married couples, they were encouraged to get married. Uh, married couples had the same problem trying to get custody of their children. The idea being, in both cases, that black people weren't able to raise children, even though a lot of black women had been raising lots of um, planters' children. Including planters' children that they had born themselves. Yes. and Their children. Yes. So I think be, they had an array of skills that the children they raised in the planters' household may not have. Uh, may, they may not know how to sew and cook after working in the fields all day and then go out and shift to a cleaning house for a living. Many of the children they may have raised would never have to do any of those things. And so what happens in a way is that some of these black women who go to court and set some of these um, precedents um, – The precedents are ignored because black people were doing it. So they thought, this is really crazy, but in a way it was like it didn't apply because it had to do with a black woman in Alabama suing for domestic violence um, by her black husband. That doesn't apply to the rest of us, but it did. And eventually someone used that as a precedence. When did we get state laws against domestic violence? In the 20th century. And pretty late in the 20th century. So that's kind of what I was driving at about black women, because their vision about what they needed to do and what they were capable of doing was slightly different. Um, They initiated a lot of things that women across the board are are going to find out they need. So-called social equality was the specter most often conjured up by white supremacists. And black leaders, including legislators, were quick to mock this argument. The Georgia editor of The Colored American, J.T. Shufton, wrote, quote, 
Is the colored man as anxious to have social and political equality as the white man is to not let him have it? We think the answer to this will be a negative, at least in the case of social equality. He has enough of that without his consent, God knows. In Alabama, black delegates trolled their opponents with a proposal to punish any white man found marrying or cohabitating with a black woman with lifetime imprisonment. And then there was Abraham Galloway, this delegate to the North Carolina Constitutional Convention, then a state senator and head of a Wilmington black militia that drove out the KKK. He he responded to statements, I believe on the floor of the legislature, that black men were sexual predators by pointedly reminding his colleagues that he was biracial and that his father was a wealthy planter. How did this incredibly perverse dynamic operate with biracial families coercively created and then denied under denied under the slave system and then denied and disavowed after abolition as well and then how does that denial get turned upside down and reconfigured into this racist fantasy with white supremacists holding up the specter of black rape and social equality as the principal threat to the social order well, first of all, the black politicians had a lot of fun with the issue. Um, there were many <laughs> biracial people among them who had white fathers. And um, they loved making jokes about it to make the people in the congressional, um, in the constitutional conventions and in the state house uncomfortable. I think that was sport for them. They knew that the people they who were trying to make laws uh, where um, if a black man uh, raped a white woman, he would be in jail for a thousand years. The people who are trying to write these laws, they do know uh, that there's a concubine tradition in most of these towns. They knew there were people who actually would have built a house for the black woman that was supposed to be their constant companion outside of their wives. Um, they, they knew the people in the gentry who had biracial children. Um, I think they wanted to make sure they could provide a policing element to any other attractions in freedom. I guess that's the way I'll put it. And having a biracial culture wasn't going to be good for them. They would end up losing power. So I think one of the nightmares was, even though um, people were bred to um, keep the workforce uh, growing in during slavery, they were definitely trying to prevent us having a, a more biracial culture, for sure. Among the most straightforwardly remarkable things about Reconstruction— was simply that in many places, black people, including many recently enslaved people, governed in the South alongside white partners. And the key Republican Party forces operating in the South at the time were the Union Congressional Committee and the Union League. What sort of organizing did those groups engage in? What sort of people, both black and white, northern and southern, did they send out as organizers? How did they operate and navigate the dangers and opportunities that they encountered on the circuit? And then lastly, how did they engage in building black and Republican party political power, power that led to black, massive black representation in state legislatures, 
in the U.S. Congress and and even in statewide office. The URCC guys mostly gave speeches. They were, quite a few of them were black. The black guys doubled as church founders, uh, political activists. Being with the URCC was just one job they did in the South. The Union League guys worked grassroots. They stayed in communities over a long enough period of time to really get the lay of the land and to empower other people to do the work when they moved on. So they might just stay in Alabama and move in different communities. There were Union League guys all over Georgia, uh, Alabama, Mississippi. They had different experiences in each of those states. Uh, It was much harder in Mississippi because the policing was really severe. Um, They had to really have secretive meetings and guards outside. They just really had to look out for being assassinated. In Atlanta, uh, in Alabama rather, the state Republican structure was more helpful to them. And they were able to peaceably set up a lot of operations, and yet the violence came when election time came, and um, voter registrars were killed in several places in that state. So they had a real uh, experience, uh, I would say, comparable to people who went on the Freedom Rides or who did summers, uh, Freedom Summers in the South in the 60s. Dangerous contacts. People can spot you ten, you know, a mile away because you don't look like a local. And having to talk local people into uh, who were at a greater threat uh, or more constant threat uh, to coming into meetings. Um, with the Union League, though, one of the things that's pointed out in the literature on the uh, on them um, is that. Local people wanted to talk to them, one, because they could read, and two, they were negotiating contracts, and three, they wanted to know the kind of language to use in order to negotiate better contracts for sharecropping or whatever they were doing. So these guys who came in to do political organizing ended up working on a lot of agricultural contracts and telling them, no, you should ask for better conditions. You should ask for more pay and blah, blah. So they uh, empower the community, teach them how to do those things, possibly even teach some of them how to read. So the work is, um, they're really heroic figures. They were probably wildly transformed themselves by the experience they had, because most of them were not Southerners, and they probably had to learn all these different tricks of being discreet. And it must have been just absolutely wild to everyone involved, black and white supporters and adamant opponents, when this process of organizing led to black elected officials in the South, including, as I think you referenced earlier, people who were not literate and who had recently been slaved, but who were serving as savvy, able strategic legislators. It was like the end of the world, I think, for some people. (laughs) It's like, oh, the world's over. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But they said, we're going to stop the end of the world and rebuild in our own image. So they did that. But um, I think there's like 10 movies in my book. Um, The guys you were asking me about before with the AME Church who went south, who wrote books. 
who <coughs> held elective office, who had to sleep with guards in the attic of their house. That's, that's a movie. The Union League guys, that's a movie. And some of them were black. They weren't all white guys, but that's a movie. It's, it's a, a form of adventure in America that hasn't been de depicted fic in fiction yet. And I think at the same time, there are all these accidents that enrich the culture. Like one of the women who came south was Charlotte Fortin, um, a well-educated. She came from a long line of black abolitionists. Uh, she was a poet, a writer, and an accomplished musician. She was rowed back and forth from the island, the sea island she was living on, into the mainland um, at least like once a week or whatever. And um, these Gullah people who rowed her sang all these particular songs when they were rowing, and she memorized them and wrote them down as sheet music, and she wrote a whole collection. It's the first collection we've ever had in this country of Southern black music, spirituals and folk songs, etc. And she just would learned them while she was in the boat, sing them maybe, or sing along, and she notated them. And it was just an incidental thing. She thought, I should write these down. Um, so there's a lot of wonderful accidents of having people go south and who were willing to take the adventure. And they learned a lot of other things that um, makes it possible for people like me to learn about what it was like. And luckily, they also shared what, what it meant to them to have those experiences. One of the earliest episodes of widespread white violence in the South that you document surrounds the so-called insurrection rumor of 1865, this conspiracy theory that there would be a massive black uprising to seize economic and political power that thus justified violent white repression. You cite so many chilling examples of massive violence against freed people and Republican leaders. The Camilla massacre in Georgia, which shot and wounded black legislator and labor leader Philip Joyner, alongside nearly 50 others killed or injured. Or Florida's Jackson County War, which raged between 1869 and 1872 and included the murder of at least 75 Republicans in the county, mostly black. And something clear just throughout your book is that all freedoms are just pretty obviously premised on security from violence. And you write that massacres often, quote, signaled the end of Reconstruction in those places, all of which were on the emancipation circuit. How did the everyday violence against freed people, which was routine across the South uh, amid the war and, and after it ended, how did that everyday violence develop into this more comprehensive plan or strategy to use mass terrorism to successfully repress the black vote, eliminate black representation, scare off white moderates, and reinstate white supremacist rule? It evolved, I guess, in a way similar to the way black people and their success at mobilization evolved. They would hear about something somebody did in another state. In South Carolina, for, for instance, they had these guys called the Red Shirts. 
But they had lots of groups, and they had uh, guys who would come over the state line from Georgia to assist. And if you think of it as a kind of another circuit, um, one of the things I say about the maps in my book is that if you see in the maps, if you look at the maps and see the political activity that black people made, you are also looking at a map of white violence because the reception of that activity was they would have violence in that area pretty much. The exceptions to that being that in areas where there were five black people for every one white person, yeah, no, they didn't have a lot of white terror. So in the low country in South Carolina, they had less of a problem with white violence. The places where it most often happens is the places of easiest opportunity. So counties that had a small black population were easy to terrorize. If there's only 10 black farms in the county, they just go by those 10 um, farms, take all their guns in the middle of the night and say, we don't want to hear about you voting. Also, loss of jobs was a big um, part of that drive to control the black vote, if not to eliminate it. There are, uh, in the book, there's a lot of information about how they did it. Um, It was organized, and the last-ditch effort was stuff the ballot box. They very often would just ride by somebody's house and say, you'll be a dead person. Um, So... Some of those things are still afoot. People are still thinking like, um, okay, we'll just change the votes. Um, In the Mississippi plan, that was like point number four or five, change the ballots. Um, There was no such thing as a black person who would be in charge of the um, balloting center, the polling place, or the ballot boxes. So I'm sure... In some cases, they just counted in um, whoever it was they wanted to win. You write, quote, The freed politics that began to emerge in the late 1860s would stand at the margins of radical Republican ideology with Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens in linking economic opportunity and political equality. And while some Republicans considered getting the ballot a higher priority than getting 40 acres of arable land, Blacks knew they needed both. What was that connection and what what might a combined political and economic revolution in the South have looked like? What sort of path could Reconstruction have taken that might have permanently secured black political and economic power, binded poor whites to the project, and used federal force to permanently repress white rebel planter elite resistance? Two examples. Um, The laws that Republicans passed in Reconstruction, many of which were devised by black people to help black people and poor white people, helped build a white middle class in the South. You could no longer be put in jail because you had debts, which the head of the household would be the person who would go to jail and then there's no one making a living. So this was something black people thought would be a useful law, that you couldn't go be put in jail for being poor. 
I, I think they try to think of ways in which how to lift people at the bottom. So they, they, there needed to be public health care, things like that. The things that they did helped build a white middle class. Had more people gotten 40 acres and a mule, the next generation would have had the, the roots of a black middle class. And if they had been able to take advantage of the laws they themselves passed, a black middle class would have arisen just as the white one began to arise. So um, the, the South was a few rich people and a lot of very poor people. So the South, uh, in trying to rebuild itself after the war into the new South, basically built a a place in which there was an ample white middle class. And I think that's all black people were after. If they had gotten reparations, exactly the same thing would have happened. If they had even got what you could call back pay from the end of the war to whenever the check was written, they would have been able to buy farmland, a house, um, have money for school books for their kids, um, would even that amount of money, which wouldn't be a just reparation, but if they had gotten back pay from the end of the war, um, it would have been uh, the kind of money um, that would have allowed uh, them to buy a piece of land. If locals would sell them a piece of land, I don't know. But there was no investment made in getting people situated so they could make a living with the skills they actually had. Well. Tulani Davis, thank you very much. Thank you. Tulani Davis is an interdisciplinary scholar and artist working in history and performance forms who teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The Emancipation Circuit is her most recent work. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting in 1862 that, so far, we have only witnessed the first act of civil war, the constitutional waging of war. The second act, the revolutionary waging of war, is at hand. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisors are Fierio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people about the podcast, why you listen to it, why you like it, why they should listen to it, because they will likely like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 